I need you folks to listen up here. Please pay attention. Um, wake up and hear me. Now that I have your attention, open your Bibles to Isaiah 51, because those are the words that God used in Isaiah 51 and 52. He's got something really, really important to tell his people. And he tells them um, over and over again, listen up, pay attention, hear me. Isaiah 51 verse 1, listen to me. Verse 4, pay attention, listen to me, listen up. Verse 7, listen, listen to me. Verse 16, or 17, rouse yourself, or some translations, awake, awake. Verse 21, please hear this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 52. Awake, awake. Clearly God has something important. He wants their attention, their full attention. Now, if you've been with us in this study of Isaiah, we know in this kind of last half of the book, starting in chapter 40, the audience that Isaiah is writing to are Jewish people who have been taken off into exile in Babylon. We know historically that was about 150 years after Isaiah wrote this. He didn't know for sure when it was going to take place, I'm sure. But he's writing to people who are experiencing the torment and the suffering and the, the separation from their promised land in the land of Babylon. And he's got some really important good news to these people who are living in really, really hard times, tough times. God is getting their attention because he's got words of hope, words of salvation. Ultimately, not just freedom from Babylon, but worldwide blessing. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 52, verse 11 and 12, we read these words. Depart, depart, go out from there. And these are words directed to the Jewish people in captivity in Babylon, 150 years after Isaiah is writing this. But he's telling them, get up, go out. Depart, depart, touch nothing unclean, Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, carry the vessels of the Lord. And the vessels from the temple had been taken off into captivity and taken away into Babylon as well in that captivity period. Bring them out, verse 12, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And historically, we know that Cyrus, the Persian leader, had been raised up by God. He brought about deliverance, um, set the captives of the Jewish people free as he conquered Babylon, and he set them free and let them go home. Depart, depart, get up and go. But God is also foreshadowing a greater deliverance, a greater salvation, a much more comprehensive salvation that's going to come about when the Messiah returns. And so he wants his people to understand this. He wants them to listen up. So back to chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who, are, who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain when he was but one, I called him, not one years old, but when he was only one old man, I called him and I blessed him and I multiplied him. Verse 3 says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness will be made like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody. And what God is through Isaiah saying is, all right, folks, listen, look back. Remember the rock from which you were hewn. Remember your history. Remember Abraham. Remember Sarah. Remember I made promises to them. And remember I was faithful to those promises. Look back. But second of all, he says, also look up. Look at verse 4. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. Look how many times the pronoun me or my is used here. For a law will go forth from me, and I will send my, set my justice for a light of the peoples. Verse 5, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. The sky will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever. My righteousness shall not wane. Thirteen times. Me, my. In other words, my people, look up. Listen and look up. As you're looking back to my faithful promises, look up. And see my deliverance. See my salvation. Trust me. And then he says, starting in verse 7 and 8, listen and look ahead. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose law, or in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at the revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment. The grub will eat them like wool. In other words, your enemies will have, well, they won't have a chance. But my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation to all generations. Listen up. Look back. Remember the faithfulness. Look up. Remember what God is going to do. Trust me. Look ahead and see the salvation of the Lord come. Listen up, he tells his people. But then look at verse 9, because he also tells them to pray up. Verse 9 says, Awake! Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And now this is uh, its kind of an interesting change here because it's the faithful Jewish people. It's the faithful remnant that have heard that message to listen up, and now this is a prayer. And they're telling the arm of the Lord, they're telling Jehovah God, awaken, awaken, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Who pierced the dragon? Uh, that's kind of interesting wording, but and we won't take a lot of time to go into it. But this, this wording comes right out of ancient uh, cosmology, ancient Babylonian Canaanite mythology of uh, how the world came into existence and it was in there. He's using terminology that they would have heard in ancient Babylon. 
uh, Rahav and uh, the, the dragon, and he's saying, Jehovah God sliced them up, those gods of the ancient world. Remember, awaken, you did this, God, verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Remember what you did in Egypt, and you, you set the people free, and they walked across on dry land? Verse 11, so the ransomed of the Lord will return. You did it once, God, you're going to do it again. This is a prayer of faith. Wake up, God, wake up and do it again. And come with joyful shouting to Zion. Everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sign will flee away. This is a prayer of faith. These people are calling upon God, do it again, God, do it again. You did it once, you shattered the enemies to pieces, do it again. And God faithfully answers. Look at verse 12, it's interesting. Now he starts talking again back to these captive people in Babylon. I, even I, am he who comforts you. And who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass that you have forsaken or forgotten the Lord your maker? I'm the one who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, that you fearfully continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor, he who makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Who are you looking at, God says? Who are you looking at? The exile, verse 14, will soon be set free. I'm going to answer your prayer, God says. You will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord, Jehovah, your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Look up. I'm going to answer the prayers. Your prayer of faith, it's been heard, and it's going to take place. Wake up. Wake up. That's his next thing that he says. Verse 17, rouse yourself or wake up, wake up. Arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs, and there is no one to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you, and who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction? Famine and sword? How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And what is God saying here? He's saying, there you are, Israel. You've been stripped from your homes. You've been ripped from your families. You've been torn apart. You're off into captivity. You're in exile. You're going through hard times. And why? Because you disobeyed me. And I poured out my wrath. It's like uh, my wrath is in a chalice, and, and you've, you've drunk the dregs of my wrath to the very bitter drop, all of it. But wake up. Arouse yourself. Because the wrath is about to end. Look at verse 21. Please hear this. 
you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, even your God, the sovereign Lord, he, he emphasizes who he is. Thus says the Lord, Jehovah God, your God, who contends for his people, the New King James says, who pleads the cause of his people, who defends his people, that God, behold, I've taken out of your hand the cup of reeling. I've taken the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. Wake up! My wrath is about to end. And verse 23, I will put it into, your, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. The ones who have said to you, lie down that we can walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over you. Well, it's over, God says. And my wrath is coming to an end. My judgment, my discipline on you is wrapping up. And it's an amazing promise. You will never drink it again. If you know your history, some 700 years later, 750, 60, 70 years later, the Jewish people once again drank to the dregs the chalice of judgment. When the Romans came in 70 AD and for all intents and purposes destroyed every vestige of Judaism out of the Middle East. God is promising something here that goes far beyond 150 years down from when Isaiah wrote this. Yes, he's talking about the freedom from Babylon, but he's talking about something more. A day coming. Wake up! Wake up! And what is that day that's coming? Verse 50, chapter 52, verse 1. Wake up, wake up, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourselves from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there, and then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord? seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. So again the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, the name is continually blasphemed all day. Verse 6, therefore my people shall know my name. And therefore in that day, I am the one who is speaking. And what is he saying? Here I am. Wake up. Wake up. Rejoice, God's salvation is about to begin. Now, this is great hope. Here are people reading this. Yes, they're in captivity in Babylon. They know nothing more than the oppression of masters as slaves in Babylon. And then God says, wake up. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. And one day you'll hear me say, here I am. 
What joy, and verse 7 continues in this song, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who announce shalom, peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, verse 8, your watchmen lift up their voices and they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, verse 9, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. It's a great picture. The Lord has bared his holy arm. It's this idea of a soldier preparing for victory or battle. And he pulls up his shirt sleeves, and it's like, good night. Look at that bicep. It's the Lord Jehovah. He's bared his holy arm. And he's going to say one day, here I am. And the people are going to respond, our God reigns. And there's going to be joy and singing and shouting, victory. And the nations are going to see it, he says. The world will see. The ends of the earth will see the deliverance, and the salvation of our God. Wake up! God's wrath is about to end. Wake up! God's salvation is about to begin. That's a quick run-through on the, these two chapters. You remember how this section of Isaiah began, the last half of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, verse 1? God says, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says God. That's what they needed. They're living in exile. His, his chosen people, they've been battered and bruised. It's hard times, difficult days. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. And how is that comfort going to come? Well, a few verses later in chapter 40, he tells us, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift, I, uh, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. For behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so we come full circle. We come full circle as Isaiah writes this. And in chapters 51 and 52, we see this comfort has indeed come upon God's people. That's one of the themes in these two chapters. Go back to chapter 51, verse 3. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. It's coming. Listen up. Look to the back, to the past. Look up to him. Look to the future. The comfort of the Lord is coming. Or verse 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. But in the midst of the, of the wrath of God... Where is that comfort? Verse 19, these two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. How shall I comfort you? See that thing of comfort? But chapter 52, verse 9, break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. Listen up. The Lord's promises are sure. 
Check him from the past. Keep your eyes on him. Look ahead. The promises of comfort are coming. Listen up. The arm of the Lord is going to be revealed. Pray up. Go to the Lord and say, awaken, Lord, awaken. You did it before. Please do it again, and we believe you, you will. We see the day coming when there's going to be, verse 11, chapter 51, shouting and joyful singing in Jerusalem. Pray up, but wake up. Wake up to the wonder of his grace. Realize his wrath is about to, begin, to, to end, and his salvation is about to begin. Wake up to the reality that God is going to say, here I am, and he's going to reign supreme, and he's going to comfort the people. He will bear his holy arm. These are two great chapters that are just deep with uh, significance and meaning, and we've gone through it very quickly, but I think that's the just, the heart of these passages. But there's probably not a person in this room who hasn't maybe now or in the past or certainly in the future haven't gone through some hard times. Likewise, like the children of Israel in the, of old, tough times. We live in a fallen world, and it's just part and parcel of living in a fallen world. And so when, when tough times happen, I want to share four things that we need to remember from these passages. Here's the first one. Listen up, pray up, wake up. Here's the first one. When times are hard, remember God's faithfulness in the past because it's always going to encourage us in the present and in the future. You know, when we're going through those tough times, a, a great discipline to do is just to sit down sometimes with a pen and a piece of paper and a heart of prayer before God and say, all right, Lord, right now I can hardly see anything but what I'm going through in this very moment. However, you have been faithful to me in the past, and i got a pen and i got a blank piece of paper, Lord, and I've got your Holy Spirit, so remind me how you have worked in my life in the past. And let him bring to mind the wonders of his faithfulness in the past. And just jot them down. I was fortunate to grow up in a Christian home where my mom and dad knew Jesus and, and taught us kids that. My mom, before uh, she married my dad and had uh, a daughter and an incredible son, she worked in a ministry uh, called, as a young gal, called Youth Home Missions. This is in the late 40s into the early 50s. Youth Home Missions, she would be paired with another gal, and they would go and travel to places around the United States where there was no churches. And they would go into these communities and set up vacation Bible schools. And they would begin sharing the stories with the kids and leading these kids, these children, to the Lord. And then, of course, that opened the door to witness to the parents. And parents would get saved, and these young gals um, in youth home missions would do this, this evangelism ministry, and then they'd get back to the home office, and the home office would send a church planter they did all the front work, laid the ground, the ground work and the foundation, and then a church planner would come and they would start a church in those communities. My mom, for a number of years, five, six years, would travel in the logging camps of Oregon, the, the hills of Arkansas and the Ozarks and, and various places and do this kind of thing. So she married my dad, had great kids, and I have these wonderful memories. 
of the stories of the faithfulness of God, of two young gals out in the middle of nowhere, not knowing where their next meal would come, or if the check from the whole office would ever show up at some local bank somewhere, and that time and time again, God supplied over and over and over again. When her old 36 Ford would, would, would stop in the middle of who knows where, somehow God provided. And I grew up hearing the stories. Look back. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past. I've experienced it in my own life. I'm sure you have too. And when times are rough, remember what God has done in the past. Remember His faithfulness, how He provides. Realize He'll do it again. He's faithful. Here's the second thing that we need to understand. We need to remember that when times are rough, God responds to prayers, the prayers of His people. Pray up. Pray up. And this prayer of faith that is offered here in chapter 51, and again those words in, in verse 11, it's, these are words of faith. They didn't see it now, but they, they could almost taste it. It was so real. The ransomed of the Lord will return, and they will come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing are going to flee away. It was so palpable to them they could see it because God answers prayers. And so when the outlook is grim, Isaiah's telling us, check the uplook. Know that a faithful God responds to the prayers of his people. Man throughout time has relied on so many diverse things, have they not? They've relied on financial security, social prestige, military prowess, political strength, intellectual um, smarts, just personal um, skills, which all falls short. Only true source of help, the only true source of strength is our great God. And when we go through those tough times, that's when we say, oh, Abba, Father. We cry out to him, oh, God, I'm up against a brick wall. There's no place I can go. There's no place I can turn. So do it again, God. Do it again. I trust you. I trust your heart. Cry out to God. Here's a third thing from these passages. When times are hard, Remember that God's hand of discipline may fall, but His heart of grace will always lift us up. Recall of the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that says, whom the Lord loves, He'll spank. Actually, it says He will discipline. He will scourge every child of His. That's what a loving father does. And sometimes the trials that we go through are God's spankings, <laughs> the means to purify one of his children who are getting off the path and going into the way of sin. And those tough times are meant to get our attention, and God is taking us to the woodshed. Sometimes those trials we go through are God's means of simply strengthening our faith, the little mustard seed of faith that is already there, and he's going to purify it, but he's going to strengthen it as we continue that walk of faith. But his grace will always be supplied. His grace will always be supplied, no matter how undeserving we are. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, 
His favor, that's for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shot of joy is going to come in the morning. That's just the way God is. When hard times come, remember, there'll be a shot of joy coming in the morning. He's going to do His work, and we walk in faith, and we trust Him as we listen up and pray up, and we watch Him, and we listen to Him, and His heart of grace will be poured out. Here's a fourth thing that we need to understand from these passages. When times are hard, remember, God is a God of salvation, and His salvation plan is going to be fully realized one day. It'll be fully and completely, universally realized. Yes, He saved Israel, ancient Israel, from ancient Babylon when He raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus came and defeated the Babylonians, and he let the people go. They took the vessels from the ancient Jewish temple, and they they marched home, 50,000 of them. And they came back to Jerusalem with joyful singing. Ezra records this. Nehemiah came and rebuilt the wall. But there's something more that is involved here. It's a salvation, according to chapter 52, verse 10, that's going to impact the whole earth. For the Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. God is going to do a work in this world, the likes of which we've never seen before. And as we continue in our study of Isaiah, we're going to see over and over again as we come to those final chapters, a day coming of incredible joy and gladness when not just the Jewish people return to God, but all the world will bow before Him in humble worship, and there will be worldwide blessing on this earth. Listen up and pray up and wake up. It's coming, says Isaiah. But there's something that is missing in all of this, something that it's missing in... In, in, in how, how does the joy come in the morning? Upon what basis does joy come in the morning? Upon what basis is comfort going to come to God's people? What right does God have to stop pouring out his, his wrath, pouring out the chalice of his anger against sin? Upon what basis is God going to do all this? Will his salvation, will his righteousness come upon this world? What right does this world have to see the salvation of God? Well, chapter 52, verse 13, says this. See it there, chapter 52, verse 13? Behold my servant. If you were here during December, we talked through, we preached through the four servant songs. And this is the fourth servant songs where God is saying, look, behold, my servant is coming. Chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, that's a person. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the servant of the Lord. 2,000 years ago, 
God bared his holy arm, and his son, his perfect, precious son, the spotless lamb of God, stepped from his throne of glory, and he came into our world, our sinful world, and he took on humanity, human flesh, fully man, fully God. And he lived in our world for the whole point, the whole purpose of taking our sin upon himself and dying in our place. Behold, my servant, the one in verse 3, chapter 53, who was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How can this world ever know comfort? How can there ever be joyful gladness and singing and shouting of victory and, and worldwide salvation? How can God ever turn his wrath against this sin-sick, away from this sin-sick world? Because a servant came. The arm of the Lord was bared. The Holy One of God came into our world, and he died for us. And everyone in this room is undeserving of that. But everyone in this room can receive the free gift of eternal life, can experience the absolute assurance that when you die, you have a home in heaven. That when you depart this world, you enter into his presence. Upon what basis does that take place? God so loved the world that he gave his beloved servant who came into our world, took our sin, died in our place, and rose again to offer us a free gift of eternal life. No strings attached, nothing that we have to add, nothing that we have to do. It's simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that today? Will you walk out of here today with any doubts at all of where you will spend eternity? Well, the good news is you don't have to. That's right, you don't have to. I mean, why would you want to walk out of here with any doubt of where you're going to end up if you die tomorrow? That's utter stupidity. And so here's the good news. Christ died for you, and he rose again. He's the only one who can offer you eternal life, and all you have to do to receive it is to put your trust in him, is to believe what I just said is true. Do you believe it? Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting your good works. Stop trusting what you can do to comfort yourself, to bring joy and gladness to your own world, to your own tough times. And believe in Christ and Christ alone. And in that moment of faith, in that moment of trust, our sins are forgiven. We have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. Behold my servant, he says. Behold Jesus.
Isaiah wrote these words 2,800 years ago. And they're as real and true today. And so once again, God would call us, listen up and pray up and wake up to his grace and mercy and love. Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? And if there's anyone here today who is unsure where they spend eternity, then settle it right now. Transfer your trust off yourself and just in your heart of hearts say, Lord Jesus, I accept and believe what you did, what you did for me. I believe it. You died for my sins. You rose again. Lord Jesus, right now, I express to you, I believe you. And in that moment, you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Father, we're so grateful that one day you're going to fulfill the entirety of your promises and you're going to make everything right in this world and there will be eternal joy and gladness and shouting and singing and we will hear you say, here I am. And we will say with joy, our God reigns forever and ever. In Christ's name I pray, amen.